With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Jay talking. Bradley J. Affirmative, I read you. What are you talking about? This conversation can serve purpose. WBZ, Boston's News Radio. Bradley Che here with Jay Talking. Tonight our guest is Kim Goldman, sister of Ron Goldman, who was murdered along with Nicole Brown Simpson, ex-wife of OJ, at Nicole's home 25 years ago. And Kim has a podcast, Confronting OJ Simpson. So we're going to talk all about Kim, all about that case, all about the podcast. We have the luxury of time. If, if Kim has the luxury of time, we certainly do. So let's start out and say, hello, Kim. Hi, how are you? I am great. Can you start right out and talk about your podcast? We want as many people to hear this podcast as possible. Oh, well, thank you. Um, yeah, I it's uh, confronting um, OJ Simpson. It's it's my point of view, my, um, my uh delving back into the lives in the case of the last 25 years. Um, there were some key people from the criminal case um, and the civil case um, that participated um, that I was able to have some candid um, conversations with how it impacted them um, during the trial, after the trial, what went into some of the decisions that were made in terms of what evidence was put on, how the case was presented, why some witnesses were called, why some weren't. We'll have some of those witnesses like Cato Kalin, um, Pablo Fenbez, Jill Shively. Um, we talked to some of the jurors, some uh, experts, some uh, journalists that were prominent at the time. So it really is just, um, it sounds cheesy to say, but like a walk down memory lane, but it really is just an opportunity to have a different kind of conversation than I think people have heard before because it's, it's me talking to people that, um, you know, lived the experience right alongside me. Um, but we all had such different, um, points of view and, and situations happen that I think it's very telling and revealing about that time and how it's continued for all these years. What are some of the episodes about? Give me the titles of some of the episodes and what's inside. Um, oh my gosh, the titles. Okay. So, um, I don't know that I know all the titles. Well, the that's okay. Then no, just okay. I'm kidding. Um, the what they're first, about? You know, they're very, they're very, they're very, uh, they're very good titles, though. The first episode is about my brother. Um, it really just kind of brings people into the fold as to who he was um, as a young man and um, as a as a kid growing up in the suburbs of Chicago, um, and then who he was to his friends and his family. Um, it's my most favorite episode because it's all about him. Um, we talked to Tom Lang and Marsha Clark in episode two um, about why uh, certain evidence was put on, why some pieces were not presented. Um, episode three, we've talked to Cato Kalin and Jill Shively. Cato Kalin is, I think people remember, he was the the 
quote, house guest um, that heard the three knocks on the wall. Um, and Jill Shively was a witness that never got to testify. Um, she was one that saw um, the killer drive away in his white Bronco um, from the scene that night. Um, and she sold her story, so she was not put on as a witness. Um, today, uh, we released episode four, which is Bill Hodgman and Chris Darden, who are the two lead prosecutors. Um, and then we continue with jurors and some of the members of the civil trial system, um, like I said, some of the media, um, some of the defense team. So it's really just, I, I hope to be a, a, a wide birth of, of people that have participated um, to get a wide view and, and lots of different opinions. Do you have all of these in the can already, all 10, or are you making them as you go? We are, um, the most of them are in the can, although a couple of them we have some finishing touches on. Um, but, you know, what's happening is as we're going, new conversations are needing to be had. And so, um, you know, and people have been really great to respond and want to participate. Um, I get a little pushback when it comes to the defense. Um, so those are a little harder, uh, which I think for obvious reasons, which is unfortunate. But, um, yeah, but for the most part, um, everything's pretty much done. Uh, but we just, you know, we're fine, fine-tuning as we go. Tell me about Ron in, in some detail. Let's take some let's take take some time to get to know Ron, not only as it relates to this case, but as a as a guy. Um, my brother my brother and I were three and a half years apart. Um he's my only sibling. My dad is married and um I have step siblings, but my brother was my only he was my it. He was my only. Um we were the best of friends. We were super close growing up. Um uh, my brother was uh, very protective of me, very um, loving and supportive, and he was such a goof, uh, goofball um, between the two of us. I was the bookworm. I was the one that was always very studious and responsible, um, and my brother always thought I was daddy's favorite, but I always wanted to be just like my brother. You know, I wanted to, you know, have a, a looser point of view. I wanted to, to be a little goofier, to be a little sillier, um, but we just, we got each other, um, we experience a lot as as young people, and so when my brother died, he was 25, just shy of his 26th birthday. I was 22, and we were both kind of just coming into our own at that stage in our life, you know, in the early 20s. Um, but I think the thing that I always tell about my brother is that who he was was, you know, demonstrated by the last act of his life. You know, I mean, running into a a situation where there was trouble. Um, you know, a friend of his was being hurt, assaulted, and he tried to help and lost his life in the process. Did the whole family grow up in Chicago? Yeah, we did. My dad, uh, my brother, my dad and I, um, we grew up in Buffalo Grove. Um, my dad raised the two of us, and then my dad's wife, um, they weren't married then, but um, she grew up in another suburb outside of Chicago. And, when, and so you stayed in Chicago and Ron moved to California? No, we all moved. My dad um, uh, and his wife got married, and we all moved to California together. Three days later, we're like the big the Brady Bunch. Um, so my brother moved with us, um, and then a couple of years later, I moved to Santa Barbara and then San Francisco, and my brother moved out of the house into different parts of L.A. and then into Brentwood. I really like details. I'm sure you do, too, because it makes your podcast better. So where did when the family moved to to California, where did you live? In, in Los Angeles, lived, where did you live? We we lived in Agora, which is, um, it's about 45 minutes north of Los Angeles in a suburb. Um, my dad married a woman that had three kids, so there were five of us. Um, so we needed to find a place that could take care of all five of us that were good school district because um, 
my dad's wife had all really young kids. My brother and I, my brother was graduated. I was in my going into my sophomore year in high school. Um, so we were really focused on a good neighborhood for the younger kids. Did you move to California because your father's new wife was from California? Nope, nope. We're all from Chicago. My dad was tired of the of the weather in Chicago um, and wanted wanted sunshine, and so he found a job um, in California. And uh, his wife wouldn't move with him unless they got married. So, so that's all that happened. They'd been together for a while, um, and he really wanted her to come um, to move with them. And, and she said, "Well, when we're a family, I'll do that." So that's what they did. So, how old were you and Ron when you moved again? Uh, I was just 16 and my brother was 19. Yeah. So you've been there about six years when this took place? Um, 87 to 94. Yes. So seven years, just under. And Ron was working. It's been so long, you know, it's okay. Like, this is like, this is trivia night for me. So my brother, my brother, um, he was working at the time at Mezzaluna. It was a, um, an Italian cafe in in Brentwood. Uh, Brentwood for people that don't know how the, how Brentwood is in Los Angeles. Um, it's a very small community. You, you kind of have to purposefully go there. You don't stumble upon Brentwood. Um, it's a very small neighborhood, um, uh, and there were only a handful of places. My brother worked um, at Cheesecake Factory first, I think, when he first moved there, and then ultimately ended up at Mezzaluna. But he was working hard to open up his own restaurant. He was um, was working to get investors. He had a business plan. He had um, blueprints drawn, um, and he was going to be presenting my dad with that um, on Father's Day, which was just the week after he was killed. Kim, if we can take a quick break. I have the luxury of time, as I said. I have lots more questions, and I think it's great to get – I'm enjoying getting to know Ron as a – you know the way we generally know other folks and not just as some – an image on the TV. So right. No, stay- I appreciate it. Okay. So let's take a break and we'll continue with Kim Goldman on WBZ. Jay talking. Bradley J. Hey, Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Every year, one thing is always predictable postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts for up to 89% off USPS and UPS services, so your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. It's like your own personal post office. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Sun's almost up. Attention, please. Listen to this carefully and keep calm. Yeah, let me put on the radio. Everybody's talking to each other. Everybody's tuned to Bradley J. Bradley J. They listen right till dawn. Midnight till five. Right until dawn. Everybody's now gets something to say. What do you say? The radio is going all night long. Jay talking. Bradley J. WBZ News Radio 1030. The 10-part podcast, Confronting O.J. Simpson, 
Well, we're discussing Ron, and we're discussing the whole the whole scene the whole time as well. So, Kim, uh, we were talking about Ron, and he was working at Mezzaluna. I'm now. Can you help me understand the relationship between and how you know how Ron came to be in proximity with Nicole, and and who was hanging around with who at the time, and how much of this did you did these did you know these people, or did did he speak about them, or were they, or were they unknown to you? Um, well, as I mentioned, Brentwood is a pretty small community. So, um, I, from what I'm gathering, um, they ran in the same circles just because, you know, there's only one Starbucks, there's only one gym, you know, there's a couple of places to get your dry cleaning. Um, so I think that they probably ran into each other a lot. Um, um, I think that they were acquaintances, um, enough that when, uh, Nicole's mom called the restaurant and said that she you know, left her glasses behind. Ron said he would drop them off at Nicole's house. I mean, there must have been some kind of familiarity between them. Right. Um, but yep. as far as I know, there was nothing beyond just acquaintance. Um, everybody that I've spoken to that knew Nicole um, didn't know my brother and didn't really know anything other than they saw him around town. So that was Ron was at work and someone called and said that they left their glasses. Was it Nicole that called? Um uh, I don't know. I think it. Um, I think it was Judita, Nicole's mom, um, okay. that left. I'm pretty sure. I can't. I can't remember. So which, he was going to drop so off the glasses at, at Nicole's house. Yeah, because he he had plans that night, and and it was on his way. Okay. So he just said he would drop them off. Yeah. Okay, and after that, no. Well, no one really, really knows what happens happened, do they? After he dropped them off. Well, you know, after after he left, you know what happened. It's all. Well, kind of speculation, or do you know what happened? Well, I I know because I I followed the evidence. So I mean, I we followed a timeline, and we followed, you know, this. The, I, I know what, what time my brother left his work. I know, you know, roughly what time he got home. I know. I mean, you can follow the the timeline of events that happened that night, and all the witnesses that testified. Um, so, as far as I'm under under, if I believe the evidence is the way that I do, then my brother was. Um, heard yelling hey 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 um from another witness that testified um and i think my brother came into the scene of of the killer attacking nicole and my brother tried to help her and um she got knocked out and my brother was stabbed to death now how did you find out about this that must have been awful that that moment can you tell me about that um yeah my father um uh, was living in Los Angeles at the time I was living in San Francisco. Um, and so it was on the news all day. Um, uh, and so on the 13th, the news, it was on all day long, but they hadn't identified who the, the second victim was. It was just Nicole's name that was mentioned all day. Um, and so about five o'clock when my dad arrived home from work, uh, he uh, got a call from the coroner's office and um, asked my dad if he'd been listening to the news and he had been. Um, and she said, you know who Nicole Brown is? No, I don't. Um, and she just kept persisting um, to ask him what he knew about it. And he, she finally said that, you know, your son was the other victim. Um, and then my dad proceeded to ask questions about needing to identify the body and et cetera. Um, and then uh, my dad tried to get a hold of me. I was working um, at Wells Fargo in San Francisco at the time. And um, so by the time I got home, it was about an hour and a half after my dad found out and after it was my brother's name was released to the news. Um, so my dad got me on the phone and basically asked me the same course of questions that the coroner asked him. Um, I didn't know anything. I hadn't heard anything. I hadn't seen anything um, of note. Um, and then he basically told me that my brother, my brother died. 
How was he uh, when when he spoke to you? Was how did he keep it together, or did he? Um, he didn't. Um, my dad often tells that that was the, the hardest phone call he ever had to make. He knew my brother and I were super tight. Um, I think you know, there's not really a a process of information at that time. You're just sort of operating on adrenaline, and I think um, my dad was in shock. We had no information. We didn't. He didn't get a home visit from anybody in the police department. We didn't have anything other than what we were hearing on the news. Um, and so, you know, you're kind of left with just knowing that your your kid was killed and then that's all you have. Um, and then I flew home um, on a flight that night and um, the rest, you know, basically we learned right along with the public. So you, you know, all of a sudden you're in shock. How can you talk about the process, how long it took and Maybe the stages you went through to deal with this, it's probably not like anyone else because of the situation. Um, I would say how long it takes because it's, uh, it's, not a, a, it's not a beginning and an end process. Um, I think grief, one of the things that I have learned, having never experienced a loss before, um, is that it's not linear. Um, it takes you on lots of different twists and turns. Um, I've often likened my grief to like a best friend. It knows you better than anybody. It's there when you need it. Um, it it's you know, it's reliable. Um, it's with you in your darkest moments. Um, you know, my, my grief has taken on lots of different shapes and sizes over the years as like any victim, um, or anybody that has lost uh, a loved one. Um, there's not real, a real way to explain how you cope. You just, some people, you know, they, they, they become activists. Some people become advocates, some people internalize it and, and suffer internally. And, and, you know, that's, I'm healthy. Um, I've been fortunate and lucky enough that I have a pretty solid support system in place and therapy helped me and journaling and my advocacy. And, um, but it is an ongoing process. Um, I'm still in it. Did anyone tell you anything that was actually helpful? Any of the therapists, any people who were well-meaning, anybody give you a kernel of wisdom that helped you that might help other people? Um, is it bad if I say no? No. <laughs> I mean, I have to be honest with you. Um, I I didn't really find a tremendous amount of help from therapy until a little bit later um, because I wasn't in the place when I first started going. I, I didn't want to continue to hear that it's normal what I was feeling. I knew what I was feeling was normal. Um, that wasn't helpful to me. Um Honestly, being around other people that had experienced loss was probably the most helpful because you just could talk and it didn't have to be scrutinized and judged and fit into a box. You could just share and knowing that somebody else had experienced something similar was very helpful. But when our case was so public, there wasn't a lot of opportunity for my dad and I to participate in support groups and those kinds of things because we didn't have any anonymity. So um, I think for me, my grief was stalled for quite a period of time because we went immediately into trial um, for the criminal case and then immediately into the civil case. So I don't really think I started grieving my brother's death for a couple of years. Um, and I really just practiced the art of just one day at a time and just let myself feel what it is. And I have to trust that I know I'm going to make it through the day and then tomorrow is a new day. And um learning how to ask for help and learning how to be okay to just sit in angst, um, I, I think was helpful for me. And then also, you know, knowing that part of my grief is also helping others deal with their grief around my grief. Like if that makes any sense, yeah, yeah. there were a lot of people that, you know, really struggled to be around me because I was having sadness, you know, and I was usually 
the person in the relationship because I have a psych background. That's what I wanted to be. I was always the, you know, I carried the burden of the relationship and I was always really good about making people feel good. And I was finally in a position that I didn't know how to do that. And I couldn't, I couldn't carry the weight of a, of a friendship and, you know, my friendship struggled because I just I was beside myself and nobody knew how to help me. Um, and I didn't know how to ask for help because I'd never gone through this before. Did people so, tend to treat you at arm's length, keep you at arm's length because they were just uncomfortable? Did they treat you kind of like you had cancer or some sort of disease and they didn't know how to act around you? So they just stayed away? Um, there were definitely people that that happened to. I lost some friendships um, because they were uncomfortable with me being in pain. And because, like I said, I wasn't able to do my part, um, the relationship just dwindled. I just didn't have the energy. Um, and I think that there were people that really wanted to, to be there for me but didn't know how. Um, that's actually how my best friend and I um, became close because she was the only one, Denise was the only one that didn't try to make me feel better. She just sat with me and just allowed me to sit in silence. And that's kind of what I needed. I didn't, I didn't want to always be talking about it because I just, I just wanted to feel a little bit. Um, I didn't want to worry that I was going to upset somebody because I was talking about it. And she really just said, I have no idea what to say to you. So I'm just going to sit here in silence. Is that okay? And I thought, Oh my God, thank God. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't realize that that's what I needed. Um, and so that's been, that's been amazing okay. um, for me, but after the, if you have time after the break, I want to get back to the podcast more specifically, but I, I'm glad you, uh, thank you for spending time talking about you. Uh, what's the situation with your dad? Is he okay? Um, my, my dad is okay. My dad, um, he and his wife are now living in Arizona and um, they're semi-retired. They still need to earn an income. Um, so they're doing real estate. And my dad um, is a volunteer um, victim advocate at the uh, police department near his home. And there's a podcast. She has put together an extensive podcast, worked hard on it, is working hard on it still, a 10-part podcast called Confronting O.J. Simpson. So you clearly the title has a purpose. What is the purpose and the, the what do you mean by the confrontation? Um, well, it's not necessarily, it's not confrontation. It's confronting in the sense that I'm tackling things that have been um, in my life, tackling conversations that I have had um, desires to have with people that were an integral part of my brother's murder trial and, and um, the civil case. Um, it's, it's really just about facing things head on um, rather than cowering um, and just opting out. So it's not, it's not confrontational. That's, there's a I know what you're saying. Um, I think you're not confronting yeah. the man. You're confronting the thing that happened. I'm, I'm confronting all of it. So okay. it, it's, it's all of it. If he's part of that, then he's part okay. of the story. But the whole process was really just about the process. It's about the story. It's about my, my um, journey through it, um, my, my grief, my loss, my recovery, my resiliency. It's about all of those things. And as it relates to all these other people, because they too lived, um, you know, a very similar yet different situation at the same time. Um, and I think it's really interesting to talk to them about where they're at now and how they have fared in the aftermath and how it's impacted them. And um, it's just a very different approach to a conversation and to a story that I think um, we haven't heard before. As you put this thing together and as you put it out there, do you think in the back of your mind that maybe OJ will listen, hear this? When you put it together, are you thinking maybe he will experience this? And if so, does that 
color how you go about it? Um, no, um, I don't give him that much thought. Um, I think that throughout the whole process, there was always an opportunity, and I've been, I have extended an invitation to um, have a conversation with him. I don't know what that would look like. Um, I don't have questions. I don't have anything laid out in my brain, but that is part of um, restorative justice for a lot of victims um, to to face their perpetrator um, and to try to figure something out. I don't really, you know, I think it's sort of a, a loose process because, again, it's not linear, this whole this whole experience. Um, and so the the goal of this had nothing to do with the killer. It had everything to do with me and my strength and my growth um, and my taking control of a story that has been so out of control. He's just, he is at the crux of it because he's the one that caused the, the trauma. Okay. So getting back to the actual episodes, you interviewed lots of folks. Maybe you can help me with Cato Kalin. I, I never really understood the relationship, why he, was, why he was in the house. Can you help me with that? And can you also talk a little bit more extensively about what he told you than, than you have had a chance to do so, so far? Um, Cato Kalin was living um, in the guest house um, of the killer's property in Brentwood. Um, he was living, um, renting a, a space from Nicole Brown. Um, but when she moved from that location into where she was killed, um, there wasn't a place for him. And so um, uh, Nicole's ex-husband said he could come live on his property. That's how we ended up there. Um, and he was in his room um, that night. Uh, of the murders and he heard a banging on the on his wall and um, you know a couple hours later um, uh, or the next day or the police showed up at his house asking questions and um, he became a, a, a witness in what we have deemed the trial of the century because he was on the killer's property and he saw him that night and um, our Did, conversation uh, was yeah in one episode did Cato Kalin say that OJ pulled him into the kitchen by himself and said, you know, I was with here with you. And he said, yeah, but he did. He, he tried to, um, he shared with me that, that um, Simpson tried to use him to create an alibi. Um, uh, and Cato wasn't, didn't do that. I mean, Cato didn't corroborate his story. Um, I, I think that what Cato experienced that night, I think that, you know, again, none of us knew what we were in for. Um, I think that he just was confused on as to what happened because we didn't know at that time what had happened to Nicole and Ron. Um, I think that he thought that the the killer's behavior was, was peculiar, to say the least. Which of the interviews you did gave you the most information you didn't have before? Um, well, I don't know that I could compare them as most. I think they all gave me different pieces of information. Um, I think that all of them presented me with um, an insight that I didn't have from from different levels. I mean, I think there was something from, from each conversation that shocked me or surprised me. Um, I think the conversations with the jurors from the criminal case were probably the most difficult for me to have because I didn't really want to have those conversations, but I knew it was important for me to. Um, I had avoided having any interaction with the jurors and didn't really read anything that they said over the years. I didn't, I didn't really want to hear an explanation as to why they set a guilty person free. Um, but that's part of the confronting process um, was to do things that were uncomfortable. So um, 
I think those conversations are probably the most compelling. Um, and were you able to is, hide your bitterness from them to conceal? I didn't know. I didn't. I didn't hide my bitterness. I was very. I was very uh, candid with them um, about how I felt. I, however, was very. Um, I, I think I was pretty polite. I think I was very civil. Um, I think they were good conversations, um, but I didn't shy away from feeling. Um, what I felt and for experience, uh, sharing with them how I felt. Um, but I also needed to extend some um, compassion to them for what they endured. Um, I didn't agree with their decision, but I certainly can be sensitive to what they encountered in their being sequestered for nine and a half months and, you know, what it did to their family and their health and, and their safety in the aftermath of this. That was important. Did they give you an inkling as to why the verdict was what it was that maybe you hadn't understood before? You actually talked to them. Did they convey to you why they did what they did? Um, well, they confirmed what I think I always thought. Um, one, that they stopped listening, that they were done. Um, they wanted to go home. Um, I always felt that. Uh, they looked checked out. Um, before the case was given to them to deliberate, they confirmed that for me. Um, and they also confirmed basically that we didn't have a chance um, and that they, you know, it was a little bit of payback, it was a little bit of retribution for what was going on in Los Angeles at that time. Um, and that's all really disappointing to me. So they confirmed that race was an issue. Um, they confirmed to me that it was partly retribution for what happened. Um, I don't, remember them specifically saying that race was an issue. I think that they believe that um, they believe that the police were corrupt and they believe that the police department um, was capable of, of planting and framing um, the defendant. That's they, they, they believe that. Um, and I don't think that they uh, were really, really willing to hear anything else. Are there any misconceptions that most people like me, have about the whole thing, the event, the trial that you'd like to clear up. You, you, you hear them over and over and, and think, God, that's not right. I wish they would get it right. Um, well, I think first and foremost that being uh, found not guilty does not mean you're innocent. I'm really uh, exhausted listening to people um, say that. <laughs> that's not what our law dictates. Um, so him just, you know, being acquitted does not mean that he was, you know, not that he didn't do it. Um uh, and I hope that people don't forget that he was found valuable for killing Ron and Nicole in our civil case. Um, that was really important. Um, that that courtroom was a true search for the truth, um, and we had a ton of it. So um, I just think that you know, at that time in our in our society, and you know, it was beyond technology. It was beyond cell phones. It was beyond you know, it was before social media. I think that you know, just maybe. You know, it was it was too much. I, I don't know. We didn't really know about DNA then. I, I think that the the science and the DNA was so overwhelming, but it just it did not register with the with the with the jury. They didn't care about domestic violence. Um, those things were really important. Um, what went on in that courtroom, I I hope, is not an indicator of what goes on in courtrooms across the country. In your podcast, do you, do we learn anything about what Marsha from Marsha Clark that we we didn't know? Did she did she come clean with? embarrassment for losing or mistakes she made that we might not be aware of any insights from that interview that will appear in your podcast um i think that she does um she does express feelings about losing the case um she uh didn't go into mistakes i think i think that 
the, the part that gets confusing for people, um, it's really easy for us, you know, 10, 15, 20 years later to talk about what mistakes and what could have happened and should have happened. And that would have been the difference maker. And, you know, but at the time that you're in the trial and the time that you're going to court and presenting a case, you do the best with what you have at that time. You have the evidence that you have, you have the jury that was seated. There's a lot of things that in some ways are outside of your control and you do the best with what you have. We were dealing with a celebrity. We were dealing with a high powered team of attorneys. We were dealing with, you know, racism and, um, you know, a a judge that didn't have control of the jury. We had a a camera in the courtroom that was the first of its kind for the most part. Um, So I think there were a lot of outside variables that, that impacted that case. And I think that Marsha and Chris did a hell of a job considering what they were up against. And, um, you know, Marsha Clark, Chris Darden, and Bill Hodgman, the prosecutors, all have a very unique perspective on how that case went down, and I think that, that will be interesting for people to listen to. What was your life like during that whole long period of time? Were you in, you were there close by? Did you go to the courtroom all the time? You couldn't really work or anything, could you? I moved. Um, I left my apartment in San Francisco um, and moved back home to my dad's house, um, and I went to court every day. I I did quit my job. I had no income. Um, I just, uh, that was my job. My job was to go to court and to um, represent my brother. And that's what I did. And how long was it? Nine and a half months-ish? It was about 10 months, probably. 10 months. And then, um, yeah. All right. I want to remind people that we're speaking with Kim Goldman, who's Ron Goldman's sister, who was murdered along with Nicole Brown Simpson some 25 years ago. Are you shocked about the passage of time? Um, yes and no. I mean, it feels like just yesterday for me, but then I have to stop and think that, you know, um, it has been 25 years. I have a kid and, you know, I have a, a a whole different life now that I wasn't planning to have. Um, but the loss is, is, is great. And, um, it stays with me and I miss my brother dearly every day. Um, but I can't believe it's been 25 years. So you're a writer, you've written lots of things. I I can see them here, but tell the folks, some of the things you've written and where you might be able to, to we might be able to read them. Um, yeah, I have um, four books. Um, my family and I wrote um, His Name is Ron, which is all dedicated to my brother. Um, and that was really just our, our right around when the civil case ended, we published that book. Um, we also unfortunately had the rights to If I Did It, which was um, the killer's uh, hypothetical account or account of what could have happened that night if he was there. Um, we were forced to publish that book. Um, so if I did it, and then um, I wrote my memoir, Can't Forgive. And then I also wrote a book called Media Circus, which um, uh, was um, delving into the lives of um, about 10 high-profile cases um, spanning back from the 1950s to present day um, and how those families dealt with their their private loss in the public eye and... Um, how that life was like for them. It's pretty, pretty fantastic read. And I run the youth project. Um, yeah, tell me I about the Santa Clarita Valley Youth Project. Thank you. Um, it's a nonprofit organization that provides free mental health to teenagers. So I've been running that since 2005. Um, so I get to counsel kids and um, um, that are dealing with depression and suicide and substance abuse and sexual assault, domestic violence, um, list goes on. Um, and then I'm also the volunteer at a bunch of different nonprofits. And then I'm the vice chair for the National Center of Victims of Crime. And I run my kids basketball team and um, I'm raising a 15 and a half year old kid. Yeah. I was going to ask you about your kid. You say he's a very 
the kid is a very cool kid. I don't know if it's a, a boy <laughs> kid or a girl kid. He's a boy kid. Um, he's he's my son. Um, his name is Sam. Um, he's uh, I actually I'm going to go pick him up in a minute. Um, he's he's a basketball player. He's going to be a junior in high school. Um, just learning how to drive. So that's that's giving me some agita. Yeah. Um, but he's he's a he's a great kid. He's um, really good student, and um, you know he's he's active in our community, and um, he's just a, he's a good kid. I, the, I think I've done a good job so far. Good. Has he been shielded from all this pretty much? Or um, is that not was, possible? When, well, shielded is interesting because, uh, you know, it's not possible for me to completely um, keep him hidden from everything because it's just, it's bigger than all of us and it's outside of my control to be able to do that. But I have been able to limit um, to the extent some of the information that he has, but he's old enough now that he knows what's going on. He knows and he can ask questions. Um, our deal is that he can't search for things without me being with him. Okay. Um, that's kind of how we, but he, he knows everything that his 15 and a half year old brain can manage at yeah. this point. Is, it, is enough time passed? So no kids at school or anything know who he is in relation to that? Or is, is that something you worry um, about? It, it uh, kids, they don't know because of him, their families know. Um, and so families will tell their kids and their kids will say something to my son. He doesn't advertise. Um, that's not something that he walks around, um, and talks about, but it has come up, which is part of the reason why I've wanted him to know so that he isn't caught off guard. Um, there have been several instances that, um, things have come up and I'm glad he knew because he then knew how to handle them. Um, but you know, my son sort of feels like it's private with us. And if people ask questions, he's very willing to talk about it, but his friends have been pretty, pretty cool. They, they know, um, but they've been pretty cool to respect his privacy. Thanks for being so forthcoming and, uh, you know, best of luck. I don't really, don't really think you need luck with your 10-part podcast, Confronting O.J. Simpson. With, is there a best way to get this podcast? Do you have a recommendation? Um, what we've been telling folks um, is that Apple Podcast or Spotify, iHeartRadio, um, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast is, is where you can download it and then you just subscribe and then the episodes will um, download every Wednesday. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and recommend downloading the iHeart app to get it, as we are also an iHeart station. Oh, uh, there you go. <laughs> so, yeah. And give the mic, give my best to you. You seem like a rock, and your dad seems like a rock. So, I, you know, your dad doesn't know me, but give him my best. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks, Kim. I will. I appreciate it so much. Thank you. Okay. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.